Welcome back to the March Mad Men podcast. This is a very special episode. We're kind of stepping outside of the tournament structure for a moment here, getting a breather and examining a film that I know Vic and I would like to delve into a little more deeply than in our previous conversation when we were talking about its inclusion in the next round of the slasher movie tournament. Of course, I'm hoping that you know uh, at this point in our season that I'm John Evans and he is Vikram Wheat, uh, screenwriter of such films as The Worthy and Devil's Pass. And this show is all about, or this season of our show at least, is all about figuring out what is the greatest slasher film of all time. Unfortunately, Rich is not with us tonight, uh, nor is Mike. So uh, it's going to be a two-hander. But I think that it, it's good for our little digression into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre world, because yes, that is the film that Vic and I are going to talk about tonight. The much loved, much hated, I don't know if anyone loves it, but a lot of people hate it. Anyway, it's a divisive film, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022. Uh, spoiler, I think Vic and I like it better than a lot of people do. We're going to give it kind of a, a, a mini autopsy, which is our term on this show, long-time listeners know. We give films loving autopsies. That is when we drill down into our favorite horror films, some not so favorite, but any kind of film that is demanding of greater scrutiny than it's usually getting, we will take it apart piece by piece. That is what makes our show special, which is kind of a segue to some news that we have, a little housekeeping about the future of March Mad Men as it relates to this season. So longtime listeners know that with the Haunted House films, we had a couple more rounds uh, that we're going to skip this time for a variety of reasons. But uh, I think part of it is that slasher films, and I think we've alluded to this throughout the shows over the last few months, that slasher films, not all of them are weighty and substantive enough to warrant podcast after podcast after podcast. And um, we're all dealing with you know, the challenges of life and workloads and family and things like that. So we are... After great deliberation and with some sadness, uh, we are going to break the plan that we had previously told you all, listeners. And what we're going to do instead is each of us is going to compile a list of our 10 favorite films in this tournament. We're going to hash it out. We're going to have a megapod. It's going to be pretty cool. And uh, Rich, Vic, and I are going to determine, probably via vote, which four films will make up the ferocious four, which will then get, or the fatal four, or uh, whatever we're calling it. <laughs> it changes a lot. In any event, the, the last four films will all get a loving autopsy. That way, we will, we will give the creme de la creme the attention they deserve, and we will crown the greatest slasher film of all time but it will not take us another year and a half. So that's good. Vic, uh, do you have anything to, to add to this and, and just tell the listeners uh, what's going on and how you're doing tonight, man? Well, John, let me start off by just telling all the listeners. Yes. 
beautiful oh, man, I sound. I got a little on my, uh, on my mic here. Um, <laughs> Vic's camera's already shot, and now his mic is going to be shot. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> There's Vaseline everywhere, John. Uh, what are you drinking there, bud? I can't tell, right. obviously. I'm, yeah, I am drinking a uh, just a, a Latitude 33 Honey Hips, uh, just an, an old favorite, and frankly, the last beer I have in my fridge. So I think thought that the process for narrowing down our top 10 to four was going to involve uh, you and I being handcuffed to each other and then each being handed a knife, uh, <laughs> some sort of blade, maybe a shiv, and then having to kind of battle to the death. But I, I guess we can vote if you it, feel like that. You know, if Saw was in the tournament, I think that might have happened, very likely. Mm. But uh, we made the there decision that Saw is not a slasher, so... Good for us. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about this. Like, I would say that we have all done just a tremendous amount of homework to get to this point uh, with all the movies we watched outside of the movies that, you know, beyond just the movies that that made it into the tournament. And then watching the movies for, for that process, watching them again for the first round of the tournament. So, uh, you know, I think that we all have a pretty good handle on what will what will probably be uh, a, a very definitive top ten, and so the process of winnowing that top ten down to four real contenders for the best slasher film ever made, that's going to be fucking exciting, man. That's going to be just a battle royale, uh, oh, and yeah. that uh, that might be that might be even more exciting. Uh, of a way to, uh, to to get to the nitty-gritty of this. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm excited because my kids are now into the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror. Oh, yeah. And as I was coming over here to do this, my youngest son was pooping because that's what they do when I have to go somewhere. <laughs> I think that's a leitmotif of the show, if I'm not mistaken. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, as I'm walking out the door... He screams from the bathroom, Nightmare on Elm Street. What? <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street. Now I have to go in and see, because what? So I go in. I'm like, what are you What are you talking about, Roland? He's like, Nightmare on Elm Street is coming to get me. Oh. You mean, mean Freddy? Because we watched the one with, with groundskeeper Willie as essentially Freddy Krueger. Um, now, didn't and, you tell us on one of our recent shows that your older son was like learning the Freddie song, like the, the chant. And so I, I have a feeling that as big brothers often do, he has been imparting some lore on his little brother. Indeed, John, it's all coming together. So even though he covers his face at the scary parts of Bob's burgers, uh, <laughs> the little one is also coming around and pretty soon there'll be horror hounds just like their dad. <laughs> Better get a, a Crusa. What was it? He said a cross, a cross effect. That's I right. finally, I couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. I finally corrected him. <laughs> I love the cross effects. The cross effects is pretty good. <laughs> well, yeah, let's try to finish this before they're both in high school, you know? So yeah, that's a, that's exactly. a good thing. <laughs> and I'm sure, you know, some of our, I know we have diehard listeners who would have loved to go down that, that long rabbit hole with us. And I apologize 
to all of you. And I do know it would have been fun, but I think that this is probably the most realistic way forward. And we're still going to have fun. And maybe we won't be as burnt out by the time we get to the the loving autopsies, which is, of course, is, I think, what makes this show special. And tonight you're going to get a mini one. Uh, I don't think we're going to go quite as crazy as we would normally, but let's talk in depth about this very interesting, very controversial sequel, which I think we'll get into in and of itself, but the expectations of this movie are were weirdly high. But uh, all right, let's give you a quick overview. And by the way, we will start non-spoiler-y. If you haven't seen it, you can make the decision to pause it or just keep listening. If you haven't seen it, uh, we hope you've seen it, of course, uh, because we're talking about probably the most meaningful new slasher franchise movie since we started the season of the show. And, it, you know, it's on Netflix, so not too hard to track down. But um, if you are worried about spoilers, we'll give you plenty of warning before we get crazy with it. Okay. Also, as a just as a spoiler alert, Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Leatherface kills a bunch of people with a chainsaw. So like that's like that's like the big spoiler. It's See, like there's <laughs> You really, I know some listeners thought that this was going to be like the Agatha Christie Leatherface, where, you know, yeah. one of us is Leatherface and we don't know. And somebody falls out of a closet with an axe in their, in their back at some point. But, uh, I was hoping for a, for a love story between Leatherface and Sally, <laughs> but you know, Leatherface and stretch happened. Yeah, you never know. Well, uh, yeah. See, could have could have been, what could have been John? <laughs> Merchant Ivory presents Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> you know, we could live long enough to see that. You may have heard I just cracked and and how else, you know, what else could I do for this particular podcast? Bunny with a chainsaw, folks. That is uh Woo! that is my first beer tonight and I wouldn't have it any other way. The Paperback Brewery Classic. Okay. Let's talk about this film. I'm going to take a quick sip. I looked for Backwoods Bastard, John, but I couldn't find it. That would have mm. been my uh, situationally appropriate beer. I feel like that's even more Jason than, than Leatherface. So just make sure you have some for uh, our inevitable Friday the 13th deep dives that are in our future. There you go. Okay, so uh, the IMDb logline for this movie is, After 48 years of hiding, Leatherface returns to terrorize a group of idealistic young friends who accidentally disrupt his carefully shielded world in a remote Texas town. It's produced by uh, Fidi Alvarez, who is kind of becoming, I think, an up-and-comer, certainly somebody that we should be keeping an eye on in the, in the horror genre. He's already done a couple of very notable films. Evil Dead, uh, of course, which, you know, it deserves its own podcast. It's somewhat of a mixed bag, but the I'm talking about the uh, 2013 remake, of course, and Don't Breathe, which I certainly enjoyed and I think generally is, is considered a pretty meaningful 2016 horror film. He also directed, interestingly, The Girl in the Spider's Web, which was a Lizbeth Salander film uh, for Netflix that uh, apparently was really well received and, and very popular. 
And uh, it was co-written by a frequent collaborator, Roto Sayagus. Uh, that's a terrible pronunciation, but um, who was instrumental in, in those films as well. So uh, a pretty solid writing team. And then that was story credit and, you know, of course, producers. So at some point, Chris Thomas Devlin came on. I'm mostly bringing him up because he's obviously very much early in his career, but he just wrote something that is in post-production called Cobweb, starring Anthony Starr, uh, who is, of course, Homelander from The Boys, and Lizzie Kaplan, who is a John Evans favorite. It's a upcoming horror film, but uh, I'm intrigued by that project. And the director of this film is also new. Like, this is a, uh, a guy, David Blue Garcia, who is mostly known for shooting and directing his previous film, uh, Tejano, which kind of makes sense. It's obviously Texas set, and don't know much about it, but uh, it kind of has an interesting logline. Desperate for money to save his sick grandfather, a South Texas farmhand, resorts to the extreme. He breaks his own arm to smuggle a cast made of cocaine across the Mexican border. And that's probably how he, he got this job. But was he the first director hired? Oh, no. There were uh, two guys, Ryan and Andy Tohill, who had done a previous film with one of the actors in this film, also very Texas-y. Moe Dunford was the star of that. And apparently uh, they shot, I don't know how much. I, I saw something on YouTube that suggested they'd shot the whole movie. I don't know how that's possible. But clearly there was a lot of footage that uh, we may someday see, but the producer's studio uh, folks did not approve of it, and so they completely threw out all of that and brought in um, this new director, and they filmed in Bulgaria in August of 2020. The movie was, by the way, considered a, a requel a la Halloween 2018, and I'm sure we'll get into that along the way here. There were a lot of parallels to that film, in some ways, the movie certainly seems like a reaction to that film, though Alvarez said at some point that he believes it's a coy kind of comment, a take it the way you want to sort of comment. But he suggested this is not retconning all of the sequels out of existence so much as it's up to you to figure out where in canon this is like it it feels like it could have happened right after the first movie but uh that it doesn't you know there's nothing that locks it into that kind of interpretation and it's possible theoretically that a lot of those other movies obviously certainly the second one could have happened take it for what what you will the film debuted at number two on netflix is uh, their global charts during the week of its release. It was viewed by subscribers for 29.2 million hours, which feels like a lot. It ranked at number three on the global charts the next week. Five days after its release, it was still number one in the U.S., Brazil, and Saudi Arabia, among other regions. Vic, why don't you jump in there? Like, uh, Any thoughts about any of the people involved or the initial reception to this film before we, we start talking about what we think? What's interesting to me is that this is very much a, a a lot of fresh faces. I mean, they had the idea of bringing back the the Sally Hardesty character, 
uh, but not the actor. Did the actress pass away, John? Unfortunately, yeah, Mar- Marilyn Burns did pass yeah. away. It is clearly, I think, inspired by the success of David Gordon Green's Halloween reboot. Yeah. And pins its structure to it in, in a lot of ways. But he brought in, again, instead of sort of leaning on a lot of uh, established stuff, uh, it's it's a very uh, relatively unknown director. The cast, some of the, much of the cast has sort of worked a lot, but many of them you didn't really you didn't really know. And again, Sally Hardesty is back, but it's a different actress. So it it winds up feeling sort of fresh to me. Like it, I don't know, it, it has a, it's a very different take on material. I have some issues with it. Uh, it is it is not a a perfect interpretation of a Texas Chainsaw Massacre film, but I think it might be after the second one, it's probably the best in the franchise to me now having seen it twice. That statement resonates with me, but I know a lot of people really like the Matthew McConaughey, Ken Faree, you know, the third one with Bridget Jones in it. And I, I feel like I must revisit it because it has been, I don't know, 20, 25 years since I've seen it. So I will hold out some chance that I, I really like that film. On the surface, I'm completely with you in that. Certainly post Marcus Nispel reboot, right. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this is the, the strongest of them. And it's, I, I don't know, I'm excited to dig into it, man. There's, like I said, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Well, you mentioned the Nispel one. I mean, I, we had just seen that when, uh, for this show when I saw this movie and, you know, maybe it was the novelty and it's sort of more audacious elements. But I I think when it came time to deciding which of these movies, uh, the 2003 or the 2022 should be in our tournament at this moment, I prefer this movie and it's not terribly close. I agree. But I will tell you this, too, because I've seen this a lot online in, in people's criticisms of this film. Uh, one of the stars of the film is Sarah Yarkin, yeah. uh, who is, is uh, again, plays kind of an annoying character, but that is, the, that is the character that she plays. And I just saw a ton of people like putting up pictures of her next to Jessica Biel and being like, what did you do to this franchise? Like, look at how ugly this girl is. That shit just pisses me off, man. Oh, hell yeah. She's a she's a terrific actress. She does her, her absolute best with the with the part. It was such, such a, a gross, inch deep take on this franchise that like look, Jessica Beale is gorgeous. Um and and you'll get you know, no argument from me on that score. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that a lot when we talked about the other film. But you know, I I feel like I've been sort of adamant that great, okay, good, you've got somebody pretty in there. But that's not, I don't know. It's just it, it just it just rubs me the wrong way. So horror community, you're out there, you're listening. Come on, do better. Well, that's a great segue to my big picture thoughts because, like, unfortunately, I could not really start thinking about this movie without ranting about its context and reaction. I could not get away from that. So we have to kind of start there and then hopefully we'll just like forget about all of that and judge it on its own merits. And it's certainly it's, it's weaknesses, but big picture, the movie and its reception reminds me of the hunt, which was, you know, famously 
semi-banned by Donald Trump. And it was supposed to be this other big, divisive, culture war genre movie. And it turned out, once we finally got to see it, to be really clever. And I think much so, much more so than, than Texas Chainsaw. But certainly, they both find the comic details on both sides of the political fence. There is so much easy hay to be made on the left. Plenty of absurdity to lampoon. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022 relentlessly mines that field, start to finish. The standard bearer for the toxically masculine, gun-toting, pickup truck hat guy, on the other hand, turns out to be someone that you root for. So I'm absolutely flabbergasted by the backlash to this movie from anyone on the right side of the aisle. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that. But okay, let's just say that, that you dislike our team of gentrifuckers, if not the traumatized kid sister who is just kind of along for the, the ride. When did we as a horror community decide that the meat in these movies, the characters who will be terrorized and often killed, should be as delightfully charming as the cast of a rom-com? Did we all get amnesia about horror movies and the concept that you're supposed to enjoy, at least to a degree, the, the characters being stalked and killed? I guess in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 12 or whatever this is, you think you should be weeping like a child at their parents' funeral every time the kill count is updated. I don't think so. It, it's fine to not like these characters. The other thing about this movie is that it feels fairly subtly comedic across the board. It's having fun with not only its own franchise's conventions, but trends in, in horror. For instance, the, the first movie's iconically jarring music sting, you know, that it's used comedically in the film. Sally Hardesty is the stand-in for Laurie Strode's elderly final girl, Ray Du, in Halloween, and they they treat her very flippantly and in a somewhat you know um kind of that was the that was the sacred cow of this space cuz 2018 Halloween did so well and i i think we'll get into that but i i think they're having fun with the Sally Hardesty character it doesn't always work that's for sure it could have been better maybe it was a bad idea in the first place but it's tongue in cheek the self-driving car at the end I'm not going to get into it yet, the details, but it's a modern tongue-in-cheek mirroring of the original film's truck carrying a screaming Sally away from a triumphant or at least enduring Leatherface. I'll leave it there for now. There's plenty more. I'm just saying this movie doesn't take itself too seriously, so why should we? It's, it's just trying to be a Leatherface for our times. No, it does not always succeed. But I will close this intro by saying that while I find... Plenty of fault with the movie, as others have. It's an uneven, flawed film. It's also a pretty goddamn entertaining 84 minutes. I mean, I think it doesn't get to 90 unless you count credits. And it's far better than I ever, ever expected Texas Chainsaw sequel, reboot, requel, whatever you want to call it, in 2022 would ever be. John, I just want to say on the on the heels of that, I've been watching uh, catching up on the, the latest season of South Park, mm -hmm. and there's a, a whole episode about the city people moving out of the cities and into like quiet mountain towns like like South Park, and I totally I had been watching that and then watched this, 
and when the city people come to uh, South Park, all they say, they don't say any sentences. All they say is Wi-Fi, Pilates, <laughs> LaCroix, LaCroix, bottled water, yeah. Tesla. That's it. That's all they say. And it was like, it was such a perfect like, distillation yeah. of this movie's perception of the people that are coming to this town. Yeah, it's satire. I mean, yes, exactly. it drops a lot of buzzwords, a lot of reviews I read. You know, we're crit critiquing it for dropping in buzzwords. But I think, yeah, it's it's just applying that stuff to the template of Leatherface in order to make it feel, uh, Texas Chainsaw, in order to make it feel relevant and of our times. Is that a crime? Well, and And because, and I want to get into this when we get into it, but Texas Chainsaw Massacre, part of what made the first one so great is that it is about this clashing of cultures. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was that was something that was so relevant in 1974, uh, right? 74? Yes. 74. By the way, that I'm glad like, you said that because I think I've been calling it 73 for a lot of episodes now, and I'm yeah. sorry for that. But yeah, that's something that was so relevant in 74 and feels exceptionally relevant again. So I, let's let's get started, man, because that's the mm -hmm. stuff where I have a lot of notes that I'm uh, uh, beats and moments and stuff that I think really flesh that out and really lends itself to this feeling like it's getting back to the roots in a way that most of the other uh, more recent Texas Chainsaw films have not. Before we go scene by scene, I do just have a little more because I, I want to just get this out up front and and and. You know, you can reply with relevant stuff now, or if it comes up along the way, that's totally fine. But I, I need to get the whole political shit out of my system, you know, up front. This movie tore horror Twitter asunder, as Chelsea of the Dead Meat podcast put it. And, you know, I like Dead Meat. They do the, the kill count and stuff, and I appreciate what they do. Members of our group of victim slash hero characters have a post millennial influencer culture persona and yes they're called gentrifuckers some people condemn this film as the woke social justice warrior texas chainsaw movie and i acknowledge it's certainly the gen z texas chainsaw movie but dealing with red state blue state tension doesn't mean you're espousing propaganda for one camp or the other. As audience members, we used to recognize art's ability to examine things from an objective or at least more than one subjective viewpoint. But these days, some folks only see things as the message of one hostile tribe or the other. And what's more, if anything, the film's do-gooder, social media-obsessed progressives are mocked by the film as being shallow, selfish, and devoid of survival instinct, with the exception of the Sarah Yarkin character, Melanie, who, despite a heel intro, which is characteristic of this film, uh, apparently is very easy to dislike, as, as Vic mentioned, like uh, getting really depressing criticism. And I don't get it. Long story short, characters on both sides of the political fence in this movie are assigned unlikable beats, saying or doing ignorant and or needlessly inflammatory things, but each also gets moments of humanity, compassion, and morality. The Richter character, this is the gun-toting right-winger guy, he's given a lot of attributes, attitudes, and behaviors of the far-right guy, but he also gets more than one charming, generous, and sensitive moment. 
Meanwhile, Melody's introduced as self-righteous, even aggressively pompous, but she quickly turns into a softy who takes responsibility for the actions of her group. She re- redeems herself along the way in more ways than one. I wanted to deal with that issue right up front. Vic, do you have anything to add to any of this sort of right-wing, left-wing do you think it works in this movie? And would you have you seen The Hunt? And would you compare it to that? I have not seen The Hunt, although I, I certainly do want to. And it's the the backlash was something that I was enormously irritated by, just yeah. because the movie hadn't even come out yet. And it was, I, anyways, uh, yeah, I, I won't get too far into it since I haven't seen the movie. But to me, this film is again, if 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 you find that irritating then you don't like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You don't know what the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre was about. It was about obnoxious 70s hippies on their way to a concert, you know, clashing with pre-industrial slaughterhouse workers and the world that they were losing to those hippies. And that's this film resurrects that idea as a thematic component, and that makes it better. And if that bothers you then you you like i said you you don't understand the origins of this franchise damn well said man wow i didn't even think of that but that's 100 percent spot on that there the parallels are very strong in the dynamic yeah the like the first movie is about hippies who are more or less cluelessly you know they're they're comfortable and entitled compared to the people that they're going to encounter and they cluelessly enter their territory without knowing how bad conditions have gotten on the ground there. And yeah, it's, it's right there. So well said. Okay. Uh, are you ready to go, uh, scene by scene now? Let's do it, man. Outstanding. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 2022 we're gonna roll it and Vic and I will pause it here and there discussing scenes and we just kind of want to react to the individual beats images and dialogue because there's a lot of uh, stuff in this film that I think is uh, worthy of note so Vic are you ready let's hit play on one two three Yeah, Legendary Pictures bought the rights to this after the previous company, uh, their rights expired. They were hoping to to continue their ownership, but uh, they they ran out of time, and so it became available, and it changed hands, and thus we get a different take on it, because apparently the plan had been to do like three to five movies with with the paradigm that they had established before. And yeah, I can't comment too much on on that, because I had lost interest in the franchise. Yeah, I mean, I kept up with those movies. I mean, it, it, it is the kind of thing that I didn't, like, run out and see them as they came out. But I eventually caught up, I think, with all of them. I really thought there was a lot of potential for the prequel. Like, I really mm-hmm. liked the idea of seeing how, again, talking about the cultural changes that were going on and how the, the family came to be, uh, you know, Leatherface and, and Chop Top and all of that. But... Boy, they just they they just missed the boat on all of that. It was just another rehash. So, love that they get uh, John Larroquette back. Yes, John Larroquette famously 
when he wasn't famous, uh, did the voiceover on the first film, and he graciously came back and does the narration here. Uh, which, yeah, I mean, if you don't appreciate that, you're dead inside. <laughs> but also, Lara Cat, like, kind of underrated as a as a VO guy, like mm-hmm. a really distinctive, good voice for this. Perfect. Yeah, I think he set the tone, the stage in the first film. Absolutely. So yeah, he adds to this a little to set up what we're what we're getting here, which is kind of like Blair Witch Two where this film opens where, you know, you can get a bottle opener like that's shaped like a chainsaw at the grocery store in Texas and T-shirts and all of the sort of merch. Corkscrew is what I meant. I want an I chainsaw Texas T-shirt. Yes, yes. And uh, she buys one of those corkscrews here. We're talking about Lila, the lead. And she will use it on Leatherface later, which, of course, is meta. <laughs> is is Lila the lead, do you think? I think she is because she has the backstory. Melody doesn't get oh, a backstory. That's true. And I'm I th- ambivalent about the backstory. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, if if you're still listening and you don't expect spoilers, uh, yeah, we're going to we're going to talk about the movie start to finish. So, uh, yeah, you're past the point of no spoilers. Yeah, you fucked up. Sorry. <laughs> Lila survived the school shooting. There. It's over. It's done. You got it. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I'm not going to say it's not clumsy how we handle this whole, you know, that she has this arc. It's not even clear, like, so she decides to come to terms with guns can can help you or something. You know, like, what is her arc, really? For me, and I'm trying to remember because we talked about it in one of our recent podcasts because I referenced Split, the M. Night mm-hmm. Shyamalan film as my reference for it. I think is essentially that that as a trauma survivor, she is sort of better equipped to deal with this situation, that she's that she's taking strength from having been through this horrific experience. Mm-hmm. And that literally came up I in, in one of our most recent podcasts, but I can't remember what movie we were talking about. Well, I mean, she certainly is kind of on that borderline of like just like she's weaker because she's traumatized and maybe it helps her get up to speed faster. But honestly, it's Melody who 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 responds immediately and seems to be capable of doing what needs to be done consistently. And it actually takes a lot longer with Lila to like get over her PTSD, actually, is how I see it. And in this scene, uh, we're meeting, like, they go to this gas station and they meet one of the, the other co-leads. And uh, Melody is extremely rude to the guy, Richter, who, uh, you know, like, he drives aggressively. He pulls in there fast. He's got a gun on his hip. And he's kind of a dick here. But uh, at the same time, like, she's, like, aggressively talking about him in earshot, which is completely unnecessary. And so, like, I think this is really the scene that makes people not like Lila. I mean, Melody. Well, but you also see here, too, that she's being, I mean, they've just given you all of that stuff, right? She was just looking through her social media, and there's a lot of stuff about the school shooting. Well, it comes after the fact. Scar from the bullet wound. Yes. But what I mean is, I, we are, you know, we're four minutes into the movie, and we've already established she's being protective of her sister, um, and that's yes. what she just said to her was, you don't need me getting mad on your behalf. 
Exactly. Uh, so like it explains it. They're, they're establishing that dynamic. Once you kind of know the circumstances, you should cut her some slack for that. The Richter introduction reminded me a lot of uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that he was. That was almost like the same intro that they did for parody. Uh, and here they just sort of play it straight. Although, again, it does still wind up with kind of a role reversal. The guy they pull over and the uh, sheriff's department has has stopped them. And it's Gorman from Aliens. And this is a, a scene of like reaching out across the generational geographical and political divides because the sum of it is like, oh, this is going to be awkward. But both both parties, they handle it pretty well. And the family connection that the two sisters have to the area comes out in like they both know like this little phrase or mantra or something. And like these sheriff guys just want them to be respectful to the to what's it called? Like Clayton or I don't know. Like we'll find out the name of this town. It's perfect. Harlow. 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 Yes. Harlow. Why are they pulling them over? Uh, yeah, it's pretty. I think it was just like because they know who they are. I don't think they were doing anything wrong. It's not like you were speeding or something. They were like, just to give you a heads up before you go into Harlow. Be nice. I don't know. It it seems like uh, they're kind of shoehorning that in. I had no idea that that was, uh, uh, what's his face from aliens. Yeah. I mean, it's been a while. I was like, holy shit, it is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's been a minute for that guy. Um, yeah. I think they just wanted like the people being pulled over by the the cops is just like a instantly dramatic beat, and they wanted to introduce the cops, so they went with it. Um, yeah, and we're starting to have like some uh, emotional connection to these characters, possibly in that they weren't complete dicks to the hayseed cops, I guess. And then they come into this town and their whole idea, like they're going to put this art gallery in this ghost town and they're like seven hours from Austin. It is an absurd, like, I don't think the movie wants you to take their business plan too seriously. It's just that they're idealistic and stupid and they had the means to do, to pursue this absurd dream. And if the Leatherface wasn't there, would it have been successful? You know, I don't think so. But does that mean nobody would ever do this? Uh, I, I can kind of believe it, that they would try. Well, and especially, I mean, th- this gets back to the South Park thing I was talking about, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is city folks that want to get out of the city and into mm-hmm. the country. I mean, shit, John, I'm in Agua Dulce. Right, right. I mean, we're all trying to find a utopia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're all trying to, you know, know, be safe and removed from forces we can't control. Uh, I know a lot of people who moved from Los Angeles to Texas or from New yeah. York to North Carolina uh, in the last couple of years. So it's it's not as implausible as it even maybe was when they started writing this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this film doesn't really reflect the pandemic at all, but a lot of these trends were amplified by the pandemic. So they meet Richter again, uh, the guy that they clashed with at the gas station. But, you know, have to realize they, you know, everyone realizes they're partners because uh, sight unseen, they'd, they'd made a deal. 
And so then they find this uh, orphanage with an abandoned orphanage with a Confederate flag hanging outside. And this is really the inciting incident of the film because they, you know, they can't have that. And, and also the reasons that they cite are not because, you know, they can't live with it on a, on a, on, on, you know, like some kind of moral level, but they're like, we can't have the investors see this, you know, it doesn't look good, which is again, a critique of the characters. That's true, but again, it, it, it is relevant that the Dante character is black. He's oh, the one yeah. who's up there trying to trying to get the the flag down too. I mean, I, it's we don't question him doing it whatsoever. No, no, I no, hope. no. I agree, yeah. but I'm saying I, there's something to me about you're going to make this movie about you know city folk uh, uh, millennials coming to this small town to you know try and make it their hipster paradise. Gen Z that you're what's that Gen Z <laughs> Gen Z exactly you're right geez they're not even millennials anymore <laughs> but that you're going to introduce this we're gonna we're gonna talk about even briefly the discussion about black people the the confederate flag what it means to Alice Creech who we're who we're meeting right, right. now um yes. versus what it means to the only black person for you know a thousand miles like by the way, isn't it a funny joke that she says, let me put my face on? I mean, it's it's subtle, but that's it's a Leatherface movie. And he ends it up wearing is. her face. So, come on. <laughs> I no, also we, love this, mm-hmm. the picture that they have of all the kids. Now, John, yes. can you tell me, where does, what is Leatherface's relationship to this orphanage? I think we should pause it for this. That I think that digs into the whole mythology uh, and it's worthy of a a digression. So apparently that picture was taken in 1975. So a year after at least the first film was released, maybe two years after the events, who knows, you know, but soon thereafter he found his way, Leatherface did, to this orphanage. Yeah, that kind of calls into question all that, you know, Coy Alvarez talk about, you know, the other sequels happening. Because it doesn't make sense, except that somehow the the fallout of the first movie was that Leatherface was still so young and relatively, quote-unquote, redeemable that he was taken in by this woman. I think her name's Mac. And and has been remarkably docile for all of these years, and I can kind of believe that. I mean, this is this this character Leatherface. He's childlike, more so even than Jason, because he you know has strong emotions, and he's more like a wounded animal or a, a scared animal than a a real predator, you know. And in most of his depictions, a family guy who will do terrible things for his family, but it's not, you know, necessarily out of sadism or, or glee or something. So I think, yeah, the, the, the backstory that this film posits is pretty interesting. And I find it credible, which is that he, the initial, like the, the, the original, because Sally survived the, the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, that the system that they had, that family, the Sawyers, was was broken up and was destroyed. But 
Leatherface was young, vulnerable, whatever. He passed some kind of test and was just, you know, viewed with pity instead of disdain. You know, I don't think Sally's testimony would have backed up that interpretation, but, you know, given that he is kind of a man-child, I could somewhat believe it, especially if somehow he was anonymous when he was found by by this woman and or the orphanage because they didn't, you know, necessarily associate him with those crimes and they just saw him as this, you know, mute, gentle giant, right? And... Uh, but and and somehow he came to them without that uh, stigma. So there's a lot of ways to think of it, but I think it's it's like it's something that I instinctively buy rather than than question. If that makes any sense, it's something that I instinctively bought the first time I watched it, and the second time, what I found myself missing going through it a second time really was the family. Like there's something sort of gonzo about this the 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 picture of the whole family that this movie. And again, this goes back to sort of using Gordon Green's uh, Halloween as a, as a template that this movie really wanted to reduce Texas Chainsaw Massacre down to just Leatherface, which I understand from a storytelling perspective, but I, I found myself missing that just weird wild card element that the family brought and that the, the movie really just doesn't even address it. I'm glad that you bring that up now while we're paused, because I think that is like a little side conversation that we needed to have. So let's have it. Yeah. I think that the, the biggest creative choice that this movie makes as far as diverging from the tradition is to, separate Leatherface from the family. And we do have to look at that. You know, is that is that successful? Is that just inherently a mistake? Or does that, you know, make this movie unique? I think it's counterintuitive because I think that I agree with everything that you're saying and that other people have said, because I think this is a common critique of this film. That, of course, having that backup band, so to speak, you know, it's like, is Leatherface Elvis or is he part of a a super group? Or, you know, at least like, uh, you know, it's like James Hetfield going solo with Metallica without Metallica. How great would that be? You know, there's a lot of we could go into musical metaphors all night. But the point is, like, does Leatherface have the oomph, the charisma, the talent to not have the Sawyer family behind him because they do compliment him in so many ways. And I, 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 I see the criticism, but I think for this one movie, especially like throwing it cause he was the youngest throwing it forward all of these years, I think it was kind of interesting to, to see him alone and adrift when the last like senior person in his life who in this film, it makes sense that she was not a lunatic because that could justify how he was, in terms of murder, inactive for decades. That he happened to find him his, his way into a place where his surrogate mother was sane enough and loving enough and the situation was stable enough that Leatherface could, could you know, not end up committing a bunch of murders and being taken down by 1980 or 85 or whatever. Like this is a, a sustainable place to leave him in for 40 years. 
if you were going to posit that this family, the whole crazy fucking batshit nuts family was still operating in 2022, I think I would have called bullshit on that on some level. Like, I just don't believe it. Does that make sense? I mean, I guess what I would say, yes, it does. What I would say is I think it works narratively, but I think in the inevitable comparison to the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, what it does is is reduce this to a more traditional slasher, which the first Texas Chainsaw, unquestionably a slasher, but not really what I would call traditional. Uh, I think it has a, it has a lot of elements that make it different. And we talked about it a couple of times uh, when we talked about even the Funhouse. Toby Hooper's kind of warped vision of family is part of what makes all those movies, uh, Texas Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw 2, The Fun House, it's what makes all those movies so fucking bizarre. Uh, And while this movie, like I said, we've, we've had lots of positive things to say about it, and I agree with you. Narratively, I see how we got to this point, but it, it, it does make it, again, much more akin to Michael Myers or Jason uh, than it does to the, the first Texas Chainsaw. Does that make sense? Well, it does, but I think his character, for the most part, still registers as so different from those those guys because you know he still has the childlikeness, the vulnerability, the inability to pass in society or even speak you know like i think he retains most of his essential characteristics in this film but if you're going to give me a a a reason a case for after you know all of these decades like this family still operating freely i i just wasn't going to buy that but this is a backstory to give him that would justify why he's been able to fly under the radar all this while. And so if you're going to do a 2022 Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like sell me on the idea that uh, they're not just raising hell, you know, turning people into chili uh, for the last 47 years or whatever it is. Like, I, I, I think I needed something like this to, to sell the concept that, Leatherface has been dormant. And I, that is very much like Halloween, but in Hall- uh, 2018. But in the Hollow- Halloween 2018, he's just been incarcerated the whole time. But that that works in the same way, right? Because, you, you, you know, like, it's, it's really implausible that people are, you know, these killers are, are just on this, like, decades and decades rampage. It doesn't, it breaks down your essential uh, suspension of disbelief. Oh yeah, no. Like I said, it, it works. It works narratively. Like I'm not. I'm not questioning that. I'm just. I'm just saying that. Like thematically, like the vibe of the movie is very different because of that. Uh, also, John, I'm going to argue that living in a ghost town with Alice Creech is probably pretty similar to being in an insane asylum. <laughs> I love one of the reviews that I, I read. Uh, said that she was uh, New York Times said a delightfully desiccated Alex Alice Creech <laughs> which I mean she's great yeah. but she's also like it is one of those things where when they were putting this movie together like she was at the top of the list like I don't know who else you would you would even think of putting in this role it's fantastic I mean she's come a long way from being the 
sex pot ghost in Ghost Story. Uh, Ooh, that's or, the for Borg, sure. or the Borg Queen, the Borg Queen in uh, Star Trek First Contact. That's what yes. I always think of her. Or even uh, Sleepwalkers, where she's so attractive, her own son can't uh, avoid banging her. Man, we just that's a folks. That's a lot of deep cuts. On this <laughs> <laughs> <Dig in. laughs> I, I yeah, I think she's phenomenal in this movie, and is one of the characters. Like she says something uh, indicative of racial insensitivity, but I think she's one of the grading on a curve. One of the more universally sympathetic characters in this film. Agreed. Well, look, that door swings both ways, too. Like, she's been living in a ghost town with Leatherface. Like, she's probably pretty fucking weird, too, now, you oh, know? Oh, yeah. I mean, you get that. You totally get that. <laughs> you, share, you share a house with that guy for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she definitely plays as the sort of classic, crazy maternal figure who's... Yeah, you know her her young can do no wrong, and she will protect them to her dying breath, even if they're uh, special. You know, like it's it's very primal, um, but at the same time, she doesn't seem like totally dotty. And I I think there's a real, obviously as intended, a pathos to her whole character arc here. All right, well, we're going to stop right there. Come back next time for the thrilling conclusion of our autopsy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2022. Until then, adios. Adios.